Welcome, 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 geeks and nerds, girls and boys, to another all-new edition of geek to me Radio. If you're a fan of nostalgia and you love the show The Toys That Made Us on Netflix, we've got Brian Volquist, the creator and director of that series. We'll be talking to him for the whole hour all about all things toys. Stand by. those of you who are listening to this you're streaming us online thank you very much for finding us there and if you're hearing us after the fact in the podcast form on google play itunes soundcloud podomatic player fm or wherever you get your podcast from thanks very much for finding us there and downloading we appreciate that we have a great guest i was entranced by the series the toys that made us uh love seeing these toys growing up uh, that I played with and listening to the backstory of how they were made, what went into production of them. And right now we're joined by the person who made all that possible. We're joined now by the uh, producer, a director, the CEO of Nacelle, I'm pronouncing that probably incorrectly, Nacelle Company, Brian Volkwies. Thank you very much for your time today. Uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, very psyched to talk to you. As am I. Uh, the, the first two seasons blew me away as someone who grew up in as an 80s kid uh, watching the story behind the toys I played with as a child fascinated me. Even the ones I didn't play with. I was never a Hello Kitty guy, nor did I get into Barbies, but those were some of the more fascinating episodes, and I absolutely loved what you guys did. It was brilliant. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. The, uh, the idea for the toys that made us um, will start start there I, I after digging into your biography and finding out more about you i realized we could probably talk for like five hours and barely scratch the surface on all the stuff you've done uh but focusing for a moment on the toys that made us when you picked the first episodes you knew you were going to do a season two we're now anxiously awaiting the announcement for the premiere date of season three what went into the decision process as to how this was going to be done how it was going to be dissected and which toy lines you would cover I chose the toys based on toys, of course, that I was very interested in personally and that I collect them and or I used to play with them. Or they were toys that I did not play with and don't collect, but I had a lot of questions about them. A lot of people are surprised to hear this, but I did not play with or collect or have any interest in He-Man. Uh, but when the show was greenlit, I was very excited uh, to finally dig into it. Um, and now, of course, I'm a huge He-Man collector. Um, so I had the same thing with uh, Power Rangers. I was never a Power Rangers fan. I think I was born 18 to 24 months too late. 
Uh, and I just never got into it. So uh, now I am very into it, and now uh, I'm a fan, to put it mildly. And with each episode going into such depth as you did on each toy line, how long just typically did a, did a particular episode take to create as far as going into the depth? You had the guests who were some of the creators of the toys. Uh, on average, how long did each episode take from conception to finished production? Well, we make all the episodes simultaneously, and it takes between getting the green light and delivering to Netflix. It takes uh, it takes about nine months, nine maybe 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 ten in this case, maybe eleven months. Uh, I think it took about nine months for seasons one and two, uh, and then it took about eleven months uh, for season three. Uh, we did announce a spinoff of Toys That Made Us called Movies That Made Us, which we shot simultaneously with Toys That Made Us. And part of the reason uh, Toys That Made Us took a little bit longer, season three, to deliver uh, was Movies That Made Us. Because it was a season one show, uh, we had some learning curve issues to deal with, and that affected Toys That Made Us season three. But I, I think a safe estimate is nine to 11 months between green light and delivery. And, you know, the other thing I would also mention is, you know, it's not like we deliver and then Netflix flips a switch and it premieres. Netflix uh, has many months of work to do after we deliver uh, because one of the things people know about Netflix, but they don't really think about, is, um, I mean, long story short, um, you know, they, first of all, every kind of television and every kind of phone, it needs different programming to have everything premiere simultaneously. Then every country has different rules and different regulations. So some countries, it's very easy to just deliver, you know, uh, a TV show to. Other countries have censors and other countries have rules and regulations, and it takes longer. And because Netflix uh, is a big believer in worldwide simultaneous premieres, um, that's not a fast process. So, you know, if we were making the show for, you know, a network or a cable channel, um, it's very, I mean, we've literally delivered shows on Wednesdays that have aired on Fridays. Um, but that's easy to do when you're basically only doing televisions in the United States. Netflix is not like that. So it takes a lot longer. Yeah, the international distribution, I'm sure, has a lot of loopholes with which there are to jump through. Yes, exactly. And talking a little bit about uh, the ones, I guess you can't really, can you talk about any of the ones? Like, give us an idea of what you've got coming up for Season 3 without giving away anything? Well, I mean, we announced the episodes at Comic-Con, so it's uh, Power Rangers, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Wrestling, and uh, My Little Pony. Those are the four episodes of Season 3. And is there already plans for uh, season four, like you already have some stuff going down the line, four, five, six, or are you going to get through this? You've got obviously many projects you're working on. How far in advance do you start planning? Is it like Nightmare Before Christmas where season four is about to drop? You're going to start planning season five? 
we definitely know exactly what we want to do uh, for seasons uh, four, five, and six. So um, it's it just, you know, understandably, you know, Netflix has to see how season three did mm-hmm. um, before greenlighting uh, additional seasons. So, um, you know, we're feeling good. Uh, and, you know, there's so much... Uh, <laughs> Uh, pent up uh, uh, enthusiasm, for lack of a better word, <laughs> uh, that uh, I think we'll be okay. But yeah, it, uh, you never know. You, you, you know, I've been doing this a long time. You, you never ever know uh, if you're going to get a pickup or not. I, I've had shows I was positive we're going to get canceled and got picked up, uh, and I've had shows I was positive we're going to get picked up and did not. So. You know, you just do the best job you can and pray to God um, you're going to have a little luck. And with I was I was saying the the depth you've gone into on some of these toys, it's just astounding. You get people who worked on the toy lines. Was, was there any of these toy lines that you were very surprised by some of the things you found out? Um, were there any, like, key revelations like, wow, I had no idea that, that made you more excited about that particular toy line or brand? Well... The number one surprise, which if I had to guess will never be defeated, is, um, you know, when we were interviewing uh, Jim Kipling for the Star Wars episode, uh, to find out that, um, you know, I had grown up my whole life, I'm 43, and I think just about anybody my age, we always grew up thinking George Lucas made the majority of his money from the toys. Uh, yeah, so when we found out that that was not the case um, and that he had only made about 2.5 cents of every dollar, uh, that was shocking. And, I mean, literally when Jim Kipling told us that, I was like, oh, no, you mean – you got it wrong. You mean it the other way. Uh, he made all his money from the movie, from the toys and not the movies. And he's like, no, he, he made almost no money uh, percentage-wise from the toys. Um and to be honest with you, had he not brought the contract with him, which is truly one of the greatest shocks of my entire career, A, that he showed up at all, B, that he brought the contract with him, I don't even think we would have used the footage because I wouldn't have believed him. Uh, <laughs> such was it ingrained with me that he, that George didn't make a lot of money uh, from, the, uh, from, the, from, the, from the movies versus the toys. So that's the biggest surprise. The second biggest surprise, of course, uh, was learning that um, it was actually Marvel comic books that told Hasbro, uh, hey, uh, not only can we not write a comic book without a bad guy, uh, we strongly recommend that G.I. Joe have a bad guy. So, uh, you know, of course, I had grown up thinking that G.I. Joe and Cobra or, you know, peas and carrots or eggs and bacon or whatever. So, you know, to hear the story that it was actually Hasbro being like, you know, sorry that Hasbro said to Marvel, okay, okay, we agree with you. There needs to be a bad guy. You figure it out. And it was just completely random that, uh, you know, some guy at uh, Marvel was like, yeah, hello, Cobra. <laughs> like that to me, I mean, I, I just, I, I love that. I, I absolutely love that. And I'm sure many people were surprised. It's one of the reasons I think your series was so successful is people grew up playing with these toys, but they had no idea about all the backstory. I think the documentary has become such a, 
uh, it's a growing field where more and more people are watching them. I think it's just this is the perfect time for you to be doing the toys that made us because you've got that nostalgia aspect mixed with everyone loving the documentary series. So it's a win-win. Uh, I am biased, uh, but of course uh, I agree. But I am biased. <laughs> And shifting gears to another thing, talking about nostalgia, I'm very, very excited for the Mad About You uh, that's coming back uh, from Comedy Dynamics. Talk a little bit about how you got involved with that. Uh, Were you a fan of the show starting out and where we can kind of see things pick up once the show starts? And we're going to get Brian's answer to that question right after this, so stand by. It's the toys that made us. The toys that made us is here. Hi, this is James Enstall, host of Geek Me Radio, and in honor of my favorite Themyserian, I've decided to become an Amazon warrior. Hera, give me strength. The next time you want to buy something from Amazon, go to geektomeradio.com first and click on our Amazon affiliate link. Simply shop like you normally would, and when you check out, a small percentage will go towards supporting the show. So remember, the next time you want to search Amazon for the latest Wonder Woman graphic novel or parts for your invisible jet... Click through from geek2meradio.com first. The world was in peril. Would you have me stand by and do nothing? Hey, you guys, this is Raphael of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And after we've kicked Shredder's butt, we all get down in the sewer and we listen to geek to me Radio. Turtle power! We are back talking with Brian Volkwies. Uh, we asked him about the new project he has coming up, The Mad About You comeback that they're bringing with Paul Reiser and Helen Hunt coming back to the airwaves and we'd asked him about his work and involvement on that project uh yes I was always a fan of the show to put it mildly um and I have worked with Paul Reiser uh for a long time uh I mean at least seven years maybe more so that's how the whole thing got started uh more than that I cannot say anything about the show. Uh, there are a lot of, understandably, uh, rules in place about who can say what. Right. Uh, and I am not one of those people <laughs> at this time. So uh, that's definitely stuff that Sony or Charter or Paul or Helen, uh, they, they need to talk more about that. I, uh, I don't want to get in any trouble. Understood. No problems. Uh, we've got a lot of other stuff to talk about. Your comedy specials you've been producing uh, for many years now. You've worked with some of the best names in the business. You've uh, established a lot of people, kind of almost given them their break in some cases. And then you work with some people who are well-known household names. It's got to be such a fascinating working with these different people at different stages of their careers to bring about these stand-up comedy specials, which are, as I mentioned with the documentary series, almost a mainstay now. Everyone wants... A, a special on Netflix, a special on Showtime. If you could talk a little bit about how you got involved in uh, doing particularly some of these different people's stand-up comedy specials, and uh, you mentioned a, an article in Forbes where you talk about the future of stand-up. If you could talk a little bit about where you see this going. Um, I got into it uh, you know, very organically. Uh, I used to be a manager, and all I represented uh, was stand-up comedians for the most part. And, uh, you know, when you're a manager of stand-up comedians, um, oh, about once a year, uh, you produce a stand-up special. So one day I got a phone call uh, from a guy uh, who represented Michael Ian Black. And he was like, listen, man, I know you don't represent Michael Ian Black, but... 
yeah, why don't you do a stand-up special? And at first, you know, I was kind of annoyed. I'm like, well, why can't I represent Michael Ian Black? <laughs> uh, but then at some point, thank God, quickly, I said to myself, you know, at the end of the day, my job is to make money, as long as it's legal. So, yeah, why can't I make a stand-up special for a non-client? So that's how it all started. Uh, we shot Michael Ian Black. Uh, and then word out that uh, we were making specials also for non-clients, and um, and then it, it took off and uh, cut to you know we've made close to three hundred of them, and uh, I have had one of the, I think the luckiest, most wonderful careers uh, anyone could ever have, uh, and you said it very succinctly and accurately yourself. You know, I get to work with people that nobody knows who they are, and then six months later are selling, you know, four or 5,000 tickets a night. And then I get to work with people like Kevin Hart, who everybody knew long before I met him, uh, but I get to work with him as well, or, or Jim Gaffigan, or uh, Alana Glazer. So it's, it's, it's the best of all worlds. And when you're working with people like this, obviously their their egos involved. They've got certain stuff. Where do you kind of, uh, as far as the producing and what you do with their comedy specials, uh, do you is there any guidance on your part? Do you kind of just there to facilitate the project itself? Uh, what kind of line do you walk as far as not wanting to get into their creative space, but also keeping it to where you know it's going to be a marketable project that will do well? The only basically what I do is I decide what artists I think we should be in business with, and then I try to get in business with them. Once that is successful, I really, I don't, I mean, I don't feel like it's, and I, I get this from my management training when I was a manager, um, it's not my job really to give notes. The artist, he or she is the person on stage they're the ones with the most to lose and the most to gain. Uh, and also, they're the ones working on their own material, uh, you know, five to 20 nights a week. And, you know, I, what do I know? I, that's the way I always look at it. It's like, you know, if there's an artist making a joke, uh, I don't know, just to pull something random out of my butt, you know, if there's an, if there's an artist out there making jokes about apples and, and oranges, that artist is standing in front of crowds, like I said, five to 20 times a night, uh, a week, and they hear the public react to the joke about apples and oranges. Who am I to sit there in an editing bay and say, oh, I think that's funnier. Oh, that's not funny. Like, who am I to say that? The artist is the one who has the experience and the data uh, to make those decisions. And I really, unless the artist really wants me to weigh in, which I'm happy to do, uh, I really pride myself uh, on, on not giving notes and not, you know, telling artists what to do. I, I was at a premiere party Friday night. Uh, for the special we just put out on Amazon uh, uh, called I Mom So Hard, uh, which is this uh, podcast with these two uh, great uh, comedian bloggers, podcasters, actresses, writers, everything, uh, Jennifer and, and Kristen. And, you know, at their, and the party was at their house, and afterwards, you know, they got up to thank everybody for coming, and, you know, they brought me up, you know, to say thank you to me and all that stuff. And, and one of the things they said, uh, which I was very proud of, uh, was they said, Brian told us at the beginning he wouldn't tell us what to do, 
and he lived up to that. We said we wanted to say these jokes. He said, great. We said we wanted to shoot at this venue. He said, great. And that's exactly what I did. And I, uh, you know, on the technical side, I definitely have opinions and because I direct a lot of these now. And, you know, but again, even when it comes to the directing, you know, I'm very aware of the fact that, you know, if I'm directing a horror movie or a drama, you know, the directing really has to be special to keep the audience entertained and into it and whatever. But for a stand-up special, it's a little bit different. You you don't want to distract the audience with your directing. And, you know, I think there are certain shots that look great. They've always looked great from Eddie Murphy's Raw to a special we shot last night in Philly. And again, you want to make the artist look as great as he or she can look, and you don't want to have the audience sitting at home like, why is that jib moving around at 100 miles an hour? That takes away from the material. So I really have a a kind of a live and let live style uh, once we're lucky enough to get in business with an artist. We trust the artist, and that's it. And we move forward, and... uh, 99 out of 100 times, that works in our favor. Every now and then it doesn't work, but it's about a 1% failure rate uh, and a 99% success rate. And with the comedy specials you're producing, uh, we've talked a little bit about the toys that made us. You mentioned the movies that made us. You've got your show Discontinued, which is now on Amazon. There must be, I would assume, with so many projects, you must feel like you've got all these balls you're juggling up in the air uh, what do you have other ones that you kind of want to throw in like a chainsaw or a, or a torch that you're also juggling as you're going or you, what, at what point do you feel like this will be enough for now? And then once these are done, we'll move on to this project or are you welcome new projects all the time? And we're going to find out how busy he is right after this. So stand by. Hi, this is John Delancey, and you're listening to Geek to Me Radio. And we are back. This segment uh, and this show, really, the whole show brought to you by DiscoverStCharles.com. That's the Greater St. Charles Convention and Visitors Bureau, who handle all things tourism. They uh, schedule all the things. It's like they're the constant party planners all year long for this incredible jewel of a place that we have located right here in our backyard. If you've not been to historic Main Street in St. Charles, you're missing out. Uh, Absolutely wonderful place. It's uh, very picturesque and atmospheric all by itself. But when you have a festival going on like Heritage Days or the Scottish Parade that comes through, uh, they just had a Pride Parade went through there. They've got Legends and Lanterns right now going, uh, getting ready to gear up for Halloween. They've got the Christmas traditions with all the International Santas, uh, chestnuts being roasted on an open fire. It's a great time no matter what time of year, no matter what the event. The city of St. Charles is always a fantastic destination spot. And I mentioned Christmas traditions. We literally get people, I'm not even exaggerating, from all over the globe come to St. Charles for this event. It's fantastic. And uh, as I said, there's not a bad time to go. If you're a foodie, plenty of restaurants to eat at up and down the main street in St. Charles and also in the streets of St. Charles, just on the other side of Highway 70. A lot of newer hip restaurants right there. 
Uh, but if you like Blackberry Cobbler, you want to hit Magpies on South Main Street. They've got the new Salt and Smoke Barbecue right there on the uh, intersection of the four and 500 blocks of Main Street. And if you're a shopper, if you are looking for a special gift for someone, there is guaranteed to be a shop on Main Street that has what you're looking for. Check out the website, discoverstcharles.com, to get more information from out of town. You can plan your trip. Get it all right there. Discover St. Charles. That's discoverstcharles.com. Before we went to break, we were talking with Brian Volquist, and we'd asked him just how busy he gets and uh, where he draws the line before he'll take on a new project. Well, it, it's so funny. If, if the business worked in an ideal way, which it couldn't, but let's say it could, yes, I would be able to say, you know what? We're good at running three shows at a time. Let's always have three shows at a time. But it doesn't work like that. So unfortunately, sometimes we got one show going. Sometimes we got six shows going. Uh, it, it's, it's, you just, you, you never know. It, it's, it's, it's not feast or famine because we never have famines. Uh, and we do have feasts fairly often. Um, but you just, you just got, here's the thing that I do. I am very blessed at this point that I have a network of very, very talented showrunners and, um, uh, you know, I'm very lucky in that I can count on people that I've worked with before. You know, we're doing a show now that I can't talk about yet, um, but the showrunner of that series, I mean, she and I have basically worked together almost nonstop for four years. So, like, on different shows. So that's the thing that at the beginning of my career, I didn't have that network, but I also wasn't able to be doing three or four shows or five shows at a time because I didn't have that volume in my business. Uh, so luckily, now that I do, uh, I do have a team of people I trust who I know are crazy talented. And we mentioned uh, the Forbes article. You just had a really great write in L.A. Times not that long ago. When you came out of the University of Iowa, did you ever think that there'd be a point in your career where you're almost now like a mogul? You've got, uh, you've got all these specials. You've got teams of people working for you. Was this where you pictured yourself, or did you kind of think it might be a different path fresh out of, uh, fresh out of college when you moved to L.A.? You know, to be completely honest with you, uh, the outcome, and I, just for the record, I do not view myself as a mogul yet. Uh, so you're very nice to say that, but I do not feel that way about myself. But to answer your question directly, yes, uh, what I'm doing now and what I hope to be doing in 10 years, building upon what I'm doing now, this was always the goal. The thing that was unexpected uh, was that it was done via stand-up comedy, uh, at least initially. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that was the curveball, in a good way. Uh, that was the curveball that I did not predict. But yes, I, I always wanted... I'm a big student of history, and uh, especially Hollywood history. So I know how Warner Brothers was built, you know, when I was in like the seventh or eighth grade. I knew what Walt Disney did to do what he did. And... So I always knew how they did it, and I always thought it was possible to be done again, uh, and that's what I've been trying to do. I, uh, yeah, I've definitely walked that path uh, for close to 20 years. And it's fascinating to hear you say that, because it sounds like you're approaching it with such an analytical mindset, but you strike me as such a creative type. Are you just a very much a left brain and a right brain person who's able to merge those worlds then? Uh, well, it's, <laughs> it's so funny. It, 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 
it's really, it's so funny. If you were to interview different people that I work with, they would give you different answers. So, like, <laughs> if you interviewed our head of production, he would say, Brian is the least analytical person I ever met. He's all creative. Um, if you were to talk to my wife, she would say, uh, no, she would agree with my head of production, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, here's the thing. Here's what I feel about myself. Like, I feel very blessed that I have what I call an Indiana Jones job, and what I mean by that is, like, Indiana Jones had it perfect. He could be in the field dodging arrows and jumping over chasms, but he could also be, you know, at the school or the museum teaching. So I'm very lucky in that I have an office and a day job and, you know, meetings and charts and graphs and whatever. Um, but I also am very lucky that I can go out into the field whatever I want or as much as I need to uh, and, and produce. Um, I, I don't think very many people are able to do both things simultaneously. Um, and uh, it, like I said, it's, it's a real blessing. And we mentioned the Mad About You's coming back, uh, which is a fantastic show. If uh, With your production, with all this stuff, it's got to be obviously kind of mulling in the back of your brain. There are other shows you'd like to see brought back that you'd like to oversee. If there was a show out there, 80s, 90s, uh, that you would like to helm and bring back, you could have the original cast if you wanted to or reboot it from scratch. Do you have like two or three that are on the back of your brain that you'd love to do? And we're going to find out just which projects... Brian would bring back from the 80s and 90s if he had his druthers. We'll get that answer to the question right after this. Stand by. Attention, maggots. This is Sergeant Slaughter from WWE at G.I.Q. The real American hero. And you're listening to Geek to Me. Don't touch that dial, and that's an order. We are back. I want to make sure we tell you about our other sponsor, Marcus Theaters. Uh, MarcusTheaters.com is the website. And for my money, there is not a better place to see a movie than in a Marcus Theaters. Uh, they've renovated the movie theaters here in St. Louis. They've uh, the Ronnie's location, the DePere location, the Chesterfield. Now they're renovating Arnold. Uh, they've done a great job. These theaters are fantastic. And I I don't want to name names of competitors, but it really is a night and day difference. Uh, I was for some reason given a gift card to a competitor by a relative who I guess doesn't hear my show. (laughs) doesn't realize that Marcus is one of my sponsors. So uh, we had to use the gift card. So went to this other theater and I will tell you night and day difference. Um, my wife and I just both looked at each other and we're like, nah, we're going to go see a movie at Marcus theaters next time for sure. Gift card or not, because it really is that big of a difference. Marcus theaters is a first class movie going experience from the concessions to the staff, to the cleanliness, to the quality of the, the digital projection for the movies. Uh, the IMAX 3d showings. If you're going to see a movie, do it in the best possible surroundings, marcustheaters.com, marcustheaters.com, the website. You can buy your tickets, find the location closest to you, all that right from the website. Marcus Theaters is a great place to see a great movie. Uh, before we went to break, we were talking with Brian Volquist, the creator of The Toys That Made Us, and he's been doing a lot of these projects. Uh, we asked him, since he's a film and TV buff, if he was going to bring back a series from the 80s or 90s other than Mad About You, what series would that be? 
First of all, I got to give you some credit, man. No one has ever asked me that before. That's a great question. Thank you. Uh, a show I would love to bring back, oh, my God, is Sledgehammer. Do you yes! remember Sledgehammer? Of course. I loved that show. <laughs> so that's the, first, that's the first one. The second show that I'd love to bring, I love this question, man. This, what a great question. My second favorite show that I'd want to bring back is Ultraman. Do you remember Ultraman? I do. I didn't. I'm not as familiar with it, but I do know the show. Yes. Ultraman was great. It was kind of like Tron meets RoboCop, I guess. He kind of looked like Tron, uh, but he was kind of like RoboCop. So the whole thing was great, and it was way ahead of its time on many levels. But do you remember his catchphrase? He had the greatest catchphrase. By the way, Sledgehammer had a great catchphrase, too. Do you remember either of those? Um, I can. The only thing that sticks out when you say Sledgehammer, I remember the time when he was bonding with his partner, Darrow, and he said, you know what? I'd really like to fight you sometime, Darrow. And she didn't know what how to react to that. I just remember that vividly, the whole scene. I can't remember his catchphrase now that I'm put on the spot, though. I don't remember that, but that's funny. But uh, no, his cat, so Sledgehammer's catchphrase was, trust me, I know what I'm doing. That's right. And then he would screw everything up that he was <laughs> planning on doing. But Ultraman had this great tagline that I always thought was genius because part of what I loved about the character was he was a raging egomaniac. And, like, you never, first of all, you rarely see a character like that, but he was the lead character, and he was just this lunatic egomaniac. And he used to have this great line where he used to say, on a scale of 1 to 10, you can consider me an 11. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I always thought that was so funny. Uh, And he had that awesome car that could, like, digitally pixelate in and pixelate out. Um, so, yeah, so that's two shows that I really uh, that I really loved uh, growing up. Uh, yeah, there you go. You said two or three. I yeah. gave you two. That's perfect. That's perfect. And uh, I've got a couple people who uh, weighed in on Twitter when they found out I was going to talk to you. I've just got two quick questions from them. At the Geek of Steel asked, in your opinion, because we know you're an avid toy collector, you made the toys that made us, uh, you're the creator of those, directed a lot of them. What is the worst toy ever in your opinion (laughs) here's the problem what does worst mean does worst mean like you brought it home like okay i'll give you two answers if that's okay sure so here's what i think is the worst toy ever there was a toy that basically i think was in the 60s or 70s i'm not sure what it was called but it was like you would make your own um, little plastic, like, tchotchkes. Like, you would make your own, like, plastic frog. Or you would make your own, like, plastic necklace. And you had to see this thing. Like, if you saw this now, I mean, I don't mean to be dark, but, like, I guarantee you any kid that, like, this was their favorite toy and they played with it every day, Like, I guarantee you they got cancer. Like, I don't know if they died of it, but they got cancer. This thing, it would come with these vials of goo. And you would put the vials of goo into this, like, quote, unquote, oven that was literally a 200-watt light bulb. And the light bulb would, like, melt the goo. And then you would, like, push the goo into molds. And literally, you're sitting there in your kitchen or your dining room or whatever using this thing. And by design, not by accident or anything, by design, this thing is blasting out gray, greasy smoke. 
And I remember a friend of mine had this, his sister had it. And I remember, you know, even being like a little kid, I just remember being like, this can't be healthy. Like this can't be good. Like your, your ceiling is black. Like, uh, who, like I guarantee you that toy would never like that toy was probably not legal by 1980, let alone 1990, 19, you know, 2000. So I think that's the worst toy ever made. Like I still vividly, I saw it in a museum a couple of years ago, uh, in, um, in Denver, it was like a big toy museum exhibit. And I just saw it and I hadn't thought about it in years. And I'm like, this was crazy. So that's, I think, the worst toy to like have in your home or whatever. Like that shouldn't have been made. But <laughs> the worst toy as it relates to my God, what the F were you thinking? Who greenlit this? And like, this would actually be the last step. If I'm lucky enough, where we get to make more seasons of Toys That Made Us, and Netflix says, just so you know, season six, that's the last season. The last episode would be an episode called The Toys That Should Have Not Been Made, and the centerpiece of that episode would be LJN's Dune line, because that that line, I'm obsessed with that line, by the way. Like, I have an entire shelf in my collection dedicated to Dune consumer products. I have Dune party hats. I have Dune sheets and pillowcases. Um, I mean, it... It like it was a movie that should have not had toys, let alone party hats. Let alone, <laughs> like there was like connected dots for like that nasty creature floating in the tank. Like right. they made an action figure of Duke Harkonnen. Like like that guy's the most. Dis- My wife can't even look at a picture of that guy. <laughs> that was a toy. So that those are, in my opinion, for very different reasons. One, because it gave you cancer. The other, because it bankrupted a toy company. It derailed David Lynch's career for 10 years. Those are the two worst toys, I think, but for very different reasons. Very well. Yeah, I I can. The cancer thing, you should see my face. I was wincing as you were describing this device. It sounds just awful. Yeah, I don't remember what it's called, but it was was horrible. And at Movie King 37 was wondering, when you did the Transformers episode, he noticed a lack of Beast Wars. Was it just a time constraint thing? Was there so much Gen 1 stuff to cover? Or is that something we might look forward to in a future episode down the road? Uh, it was 1,000% a time constraint. We absolutely cut that, edited that. Um, I mean, everything. Uh, we we did a very deep dive into it. And we had to cut it for time. Mm. The good news is, uh, we have a massive Blu-ray set coming out between now and the end of the year. Uh, and I, I am always so nervous to say stuff like this because if whenever I'm wrong, I hear about it a lot forever. So uh, just please hear me that I am saying I think, I think, I think, I think uh, one of the extras is the Beastmaster, uh, Beast Wars, not Beastmaster, that would be very random, uh, the Beast Wars, uh, the Beast Wars scene that we cut out. Fantastic. So that'd be something to look forward to for sure if you're planning to buy the uh, Blu-ray when it comes out. Uh, hopefully that'll be on there. That's very exciting because I know a lot of people 
have said before, when I mentioned this documentary series, they said, oh, I don't have Netflix. I was like, this is worth getting Netflix just so you can watch the toys that made us. It's ridiculous. Yes. Uh, <laughs> to, uh, to put it mildly, uh, it, it, it's a massive set. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, we, we threw in everything but the kitchen sink. And one last question. I know I've already taken up a lot of your time. With all the stuff oh, you're agree, doing, man. with all the uh, with all the work, when you're wanting to switch your brain off and you want to kind of relax and decompress, what do you watch then? What what kind of shows do you like? What do you uh, what do you like to put on? Or do you, are you more of a reader? What do you kind of do to just take your mind off work? And we're going to wrap up the conversation with Brian Volk. We're finding out what he does to relax when he's not working on all these projects. Right after this, stand by. This is Alan Oppenheimer, the voice of Skeletor, and you're listening to Geek to Me. And we're back. We've been joined this hour by Brian Volkwies, uh, creator of The Toys That Made Us, uh, many comedy specials that we talked about, uh, working on Mad About You, The Comeback. We talked about with all these projects he's working on, what he does to relax. Well, my number one thing that I do to take my mind off work, which is the greatest thing in the world in general, but in particular, taking your mind off work, is... uh, you know, I, I have an amazing wife and three kids, and uh, I mean, every as cheesy as this sounds, and my God, I know it sounds cheesy, but I mean, every minute with them is is just is, is memorable and and wonderful, and you know, I can have the worst day or whatever, and I get home, and you know, I'm just hanging out with my kids or my wife, and that is the greatest distraction. Uh, and not distraction, but that's the greatest thing in the world. It's like, you know, it's like literally just walking out of one planet and then walking on to another. Like, it's it's the best. Um, TV shows and stuff. Uh, there's certain shows that, like, I love and I'm passionate about. And I'm like, like, I am religious about The Expanse. On, it used to be on Sci-Fi Channel. Now it's on Amazon. Right. Season 4 comes out, I think, in November or December. I love The Expanse. I'm religious about it. I've seen the whole thing twice. Um, One of the greatest, it's probably the greatest science fiction show other than Star Trek, which, of course, is in its own category. Uh, I love The Boys. Uh, I just finished watching that. That's a great show. Um, Also not relaxing, but a great show. Right. Um, I love Miss Maisel. Uh, that's a fantastic show. Um, but I'm also like a big Star Trek guy. So for like enjoying and just relaxing, like seasons three through seven of Next Generation, uh, those are uh, very relaxing for me. I watch them all the time. Uh, and all the movies, in particular, the Kirk and Spock movies, one, uh, I don't watch five, but I do watch one through four and six pretty frequently. Uh, and then I watch uh, Generations and First Contact uh, quite a bit as well. So, yeah, and then I do read. I don't read as much as I used to before I had kids, uh, but I do. I try to read. I know this sounds horrible. Anyone who doesn't have kids will not will think this is ridiculous. But if you do have kids, uh, this won't sound as ridiculous. But I try to read at least one page a week. Uh, and that, that may sound ridiculous. And usually it's not just one page. Usually because I have the rule, I'll pick up the book and end up reading a chapter. But, um, but yeah, I used to read a lot more, but not, not as much as I used to. 
Uh, James, thank you so much. Uh, I do have to jump. I apologize, nope. uh, but I really appreciate your time, your interest, uh, and all your questions. Really good stuff. This was, uh, this was a lot of fun. That's going to wrap it up. My thanks once again to Brian Volkwies for being on air for the whole hour with us. A great conversation. Check out The Toys That Made Us Season 3 in November. Until next week, my friends. It's not in the way you watch I sound be. It's not in the way you watch The Flash. It's not in the way you love Scotty Young Arts. It's not in the way you play Mario Kart. It's not in the way you look when you make him and throw references. That's a show. This is Geek Tommy Radio. That's a show. This is Geek Tommy Radio. Thank you, Netflix. Good night. <laughs>